This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Justine Lee, and I'm a board-certified emergency critical care specialist and toxicologist. Thanks for joining us today. Today, we're going to be talking about all things cats, especially when it comes to decoding them. And we'll be joined with Dr. Megan Heron, who's a board-certified veterinary behaviorist. We'll be right back after these messages. So now I've got this pack of four Sharpay Rescue dogs for, oh my goodness, probably five, six years. They get a regular diet of Dynavite with every meal. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. People remark on what beautiful coats they've got. I tell them, you don't need to wait until a problem presents itself. It's far better to keep the dog happy and healthy at all times. You won't believe how happy your dog will be. I get my Dynavite from D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. Really excited to be able to talk to Dr. Megan Heron, who's a board-certified veterinary behaviorist, and she serves as the Senior Director of Behavioral Medicine Education, Research, and Outreach. She's also one of 70 veterinarians in the country that's a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Behaviorists. Dr. Heron, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So just so our ER vet audience knows who you are, do you mind just giving us a little bit of background about where you trained, what made you interested in behavior, and what you do right now? Sure. Well, I'm a Buckeye true and true, born in Ohio, raised in Ohio. I've tried to leave a couple of times, but back to the Ohio State University for veterinary school, after which I decided to work a little bit in shelters as well as in general practice before taking on a residency in behavioral medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Finished up there, packed up my U-Haul, drove back to Ohio State, and I was actually the clinical director of behavioral medicine at the Ohio State University College of Veterinary Medicine for about a decade and just recently shifted gears over to the shelter world where I'm now, as you said, senior director of behavioral medicine at GG's, an organization dedicated to improving the lives of shelter dogs. Thank you so much. And I was wondering if you could just explain to our audience, what's the difference between an animal trainer and a board-certified veterinary behaviorist? And when would a pet owner seek out a veterinary specialist in the area of behavior? That is a great question. And the lines are often misunderstood, sometimes blurred, because there's not a whole lot of information out there. And so what I would say, you see a dog trainer for a training problem, and you see a veterinary behaviorist for a emotional disorder. Really, and sometimes it can be hard to tell the difference. And that's where I feel like our family veterinarians can really help step in to help our pet families differentiate if this is a training issue or a true emotional disorder. And veterinary behaviorists, we are trainers as well. So we do a lot of training in our work, but we can do a whole lot more than that as well because we have the benefit of being veterinarians. So we can look at the animal as a whole and decide if certain behaviors, for example, might be an indication of a medical disease, right? If a dog, let's say, is 
constantly licking the carpet, constantly licking the couch, often licking everything, air licking. That is actually a big sign of a gastrointestinal problem. And a lot of people may not realize that. That's something that's such a veterinary behaviorist, probably alongside with uh, an internist, right? And that's not a training issue, for example. Whereas things like jumping up for attention, pulling on the leash, learning how to have appropriate manners, those are dog trainer issues. Those are things that any positive reinforcement-based trainer can handle humanely and effectively. And I work with some wonderful trainers in the central Ohio area for sure. Wonderful. Thank you so much. One key question I wanted to ask that was unrelated to what we're going to talk about is what are one or two tips that you have for finding a right trainer? Oh, this is hard because much like books on behavior, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of great trainers in our area. And then there's some that I just think they're not the best match for a lot of the dogs that, that I see specifically. And so we'll basically see two main schools of thought when it comes to dog training. So you have those that want to accomplish their tasks. They want dogs to be motivated to perform behaviors and to train a certain way because they want them to be looking forward to the consequence, right? This is called positive reinforcement or rewards-based training, where if we want to teach a dog to sit, for example, we might either wait for them to offer that behavior or use food to lure them to that behavior and then say, great job by giving them a treat when they give us the behavior that we want. That then reinforces that behavior so that they'll want to repeat it and do it again. So that is positive reinforcement-based training. Now, the other side of that is motivation by punishment, in which case the dog is motivated typically not to do a behavior because they're fearful of what the consequence might be. Or fearful of what the consequence might be if they don't perform a certain behavior. So it's a completely different state of mind for the dog in response to the training, even if the end product is the same. Say, uh, getting a dog to sit, getting a dog to stay, getting a dog to walk loosely on a leash, right? The end point is the same. The desired behavior is the same, but the way you get there is quite different. And why this makes a difference for a lot of dogs is that when you utilize punishment-based training methods, you're involving fear, which is a very strong emotion. And if you have dogs or cats that already have an underlying anxiety or fear or phobia issue, you are going to strongly exacerbate that by using punishment-based methods. You never want to play with emotion by making it worse with fear. Um, and so for me as a veterinary behaviorist, the majority of the patients I see do have some sort of fear or anxiety issue. So the use of punishment for them can be very dangerous. And I actually published a study back in 2009 during my residency where we showed that the utilization of confrontational techniques, whether they are harsh punishment, physical punishment, verbal reprimands, intimidation, actually resulted in aggressive responses, at least when you use them on our population of dogs, which were dogs presenting for behavioral disorder. So it not only puts your dog in, into a negative emotional state, but it can also put you at risk of an aggressive response. Positive reinforcement sounds so much better. I know uh, my dog will do anything for <laughs> microwave small pieces of hot dogs. So thank you for clarifying that. So, training should be fun. It's a bonding experience between families and their pets. And I always say that I can typically tell how a dog is trained based on looking how what their body language is like next to their handler, right? Dogs that are trained with positive reinforcement, they're wiggly and they're eager and they're making eye contact as opposed to the dog that has been historically trained with punishment. They're very still, they're avoiding eye contact because they're worried about making a wrong move. So I think most families want their dogs to be happy when they're working with them. 
Absolutely, which is why I wanted to talk to you about how we can keep our cats happy, safe, and healthy within our environment. I understand that you are the editor on this great book called Decoding Your Cat. The ultimate experts explain common cat behaviors and reveal how to prevent or change unwanted ones. I know this is a cat version of the dog book that's out there called Decoding Your Dog. So do you mind just telling us a little bit about this book, how the American College of Veterinary Behaviorists all joined together to be able to write this and give us a couple of highlights or tips or myths that we can do when it comes to keeping our cat healthier and happier? Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, Decoding Your Dog was our first edition. We have always had intentions to publish both books, but we started with dogs. And that's that the publisher had, I think, a little more faith in a dog behavior book. And thankfully, our sales just blew expectations out of the water. It was a highly successful publication. It's been translated into two different languages. <laughs> There's an audiobook. It's been very popular. It's really a great go-to. You want to learn about dogs just either because you want to understand your current dog or you're thinking about getting one. So it's been a great resource for that. So we were super excited when the same publisher gave us the opportunity to publish Decoding Your Cat. And so I had the honor of being the lead editor of this publication. All of our authors are members of the American College of Veterinary Behaviorists. So each come with their own unique perspective and expertise, all with the same board certification. And really, this book is intended for just like with dogs. It's an extensive dive into the psyche of a cat what are normal behaviors, even the ones that really bother us, those nuisance behaviors, some of them are actually quite normal. And then how do we deal with them? And then more importantly, how do we make sure that our cats have the best physical and mental well-being as possible? And this book really gives a comprehensive overview of how we can accomplish that. And again, I think even if someone doesn't have a cat, if you are interested in a read or even considering getting a cat, I think reading this book is a great way to decide, well, what does it take to have a cat? How do I set up my lifestyle in my home for success? Is that something I want to undertake? Where should I get a cat? Should I get a kitten or an adult? We cover all of that. So it's a really great comprehensive resource for everybody. So for people who already have one cat, I guess I'll start off by asking this question when it comes to cats. What is your go-to recommended number? How many cats should you get? <laughs> and what's the max number of cats that most behaviors recommend getting? This is very oh, controversial, sure. but I would love to hear it from an expert. It is controversial, and I'm going to guess everyone's answer is different based on their own experience. And what I always say is it's never too many cats until there's one too many cats. <laughs> Meaning it all depends on the social dynamics and social experiences of the individual cats. If, for example, if you have cats that were in a large litter of kittens and were raised with multiple cats during the young months to years of their lives, they're going to probably be very amicable to additional members to their social group. That said, if they were removed from mom and litter mates very young and have been living as a single cat for years, they're likely to be less inclined to want to get along and live in a group. And also depends on really what's the environment like. So the biggest factor for tension between cats is access to resources. And that's going to include food, fresh water, the best perching station in front of the window, access to high resting points on the periphery of the room, attention from their people, litter box access. So if you are lacking in numbers of any of these resources, that's where you're going to start to see sources of tension. But there are many homes who are very successful with, say, 10, 11 cats. It sounds like a lot. But if you've got stations, what I call a multitude of stations for each of these resources, some of them can do very well. But again, it's going to depend on that individual cat. So for that cat who has not lived with cats all its life, one more cat is too many for that household. 
You have cats who have a lot of great early social experience, particularly if they're younger. Kittens are typically much more amenable to getting along with others and accepting new group members. You may be very successful at seven, eight, or nine cats. So again, it all depends. And that's probably the answer you get asking any behaviorist about behavior. It depends. That's a great PC answer. I would say I I have one cat right now uh, because I've lost a few, but I do love having two cats because they, when they get along, they're great companions. Are there any published research studies on when you start to see more behavioral problems in cats? I don't have a published research of of the age of onset. What we do know statistically is that if you are wanting to be a multi-cat household, relatedness is a factor, a positive indicator for success and introducing them when they're juvenile. So six months or, or younger has been shown. So getting litter mates is actually a great recommendation for cats. I never recommend that for dogs, but for cats, getting two litter mates can actually really hopefully set you up for success for them to be bonded for life. Now that's all, not always the case. I've certainly seen litter mates where something happens where you get a redirected episode. So one cat gets really spooked by something outside and they attack their their housemate and then the bond is damaged and you have to work on that. So that can happen with litter mates as well. But for the most part, getting cats when they are young and if they happen to be related tends to have a better prognosis for them getting along for life. Wonderful. Now, what's the best way that you recommend introducing two new cats to each other? So cats in general are not big fans of change. So you want to start introducing things very slowly. Ideally, you're doing your homework ahead of time to find out what might be the best match for your individual cat. So if you have a young kitten, your success rate is going to be a lot higher. Uh, But then you want to look into what else you're adopting. So an older, more sedentary cat is not going to really be a fan of the antics of a young juvenile cat. Juvenile cats love to play. And if there's another cat that's not interested and they're running away from them, well, that is perfect entertainment for that juvenile cat. So thinking about matching, if you have an adult cat, perhaps getting another adult cat, or at least if you're going to be getting a kitten, introducing to your adult cat, be prepared to entertain the heck out of that kitten so they're not taking out all their energy on that adult cat. But once you've made your decision, what you want to start doing is introducing this setup for the new cat. And what I say typically for any new animal you're bringing into your home is to keep their world small initially. They don't know what your whole household looks like, so they don't know what they're missing if you're confining them to a smaller space. Whereas if you try to take your current cat who's used to having the full palace access and suddenly restrict them to a room, that's going to be a huge change for them and potentially be very stressful. And if they're in a stressed state of mind, that's not a great time to introduce them to another social group member. So typically recommend getting a single room set up if possible or part of your home for the newcomer. That's going to include all those resources we just talked about, food, water, litter boxes, access to resting spaces, making sure you're setting aside time to spend with them in that room, scratching posts, toys, lots of self-entertainment there. And you want to start by having them in that room and you want a solid door closed. And I would even recommend some sort of towel or draft protector so that there's no exchange of paws or scents through that door. So basically they're in that room. That resident cat is going to know something's in there, but they don't need to quite see them just yet. And I usually recommend starting with a scent exchange. And so that can mean lying a towel over the favorite resting place of the new cat as well as the resident cat. And then you exchange them. Just set them in the middle of the floor. Even better yet, you can sprinkle some treats, the favorite treat of the resident cat, all over that scent. So that scent is being introduced to them in a positive manner. And as you're not seeing any display of fear or agitation at that smell, it means you can move forward. 
you'll have some resident cats that just the smell of a new cat in their home will elicit hissing and a lot of agitated behavior. If that's the case, you need to stay at that level or even back up by moving the towel to the periphery of the room and making sure you're putting treats on it every day. I'm going to make sure that's okay. But if the smell, the cats are both checking it out and there's no agitated body language, no hissing, no dilation of pupils, no puffing up of the tail, then you can move on to a little more scent exchange. So that's where you might pet one cat with gloves on and then allow the next cat to sniff it. If they aren't upset about that smell, you can pet them with that same glove and you're doing a bit of a scent exchange on each of the cats. So it becomes kind of a group smell. And then you can leave, whether it's a glove or whether it's a, a towel, you can leave that out for them to smell. If all's going well, and again, this is at minimum at least a day to two days between each step, depending on the age of the cats. Younger cats is probably going to go a lot faster, but older cats, I would say to people, if it feels like you're going too slowly, you're probably going at the right pace. So in a day or two, if that is the scent exchange is going well, then I want to start to do some feeding exercises on either side of that door. At this point, since you've had the draft protector or towel under there the whole time, for these specific sessions, it's okay to remove the towel or draft protector, place bowls of their favorite food. What I like to do is something called a lick plate. So if cats enjoy chicken baby food or tuna fish or canned cat food, you can smear a thin layer of that over a plate and set each plate a few feet apart from that door. So you have a door, closed door in the middle with a plate three feet away from either side of that door. So these cats can sense some movement. There's more scent exchange naturally going under that door and their brain is processing a positive emotion as they lick that very delicious, very palatable food. And then you put the draft protector right back and you do another session later in the day. The more sessions you do a day, the faster you can move on the following day. So if you can do three little sessions like that in one day, the next day you can move the bowls closer to the door. Till eventually they're both licking their food off their plate right next to either side of the door. If that is going well, then you can do what we call either the hook and eye or like a cinder block. So what you want to do is crack that door ever so slightly so that they can see each other, but they cannot access each other and they can't barge through the door and open it. So you really need a hook and eye or something super heavy to prevent that door from opening, like a door jam or something like that. And then what you do is you only open it for this session. You get your lick place again, you move them several feet away from the opposite side of that crack in that door. So you kind of angle it so they can see each other, but it's at a distance and it's only for a little, a little slither of vision. And then each session you move those plates closer and closer until they can be licking off of it and still see each other. If that's going well, then the next step is to give them full visual exposure without any physical exposure. And so this can be accomplished either through a double or triple baby gate system, depending on how agile your cats are, because you don't want anybody leaping over into the other space until they're ready. And then again, you start with the lick plates. You start a few feet away, and each session you move them closer and closer together till they can eat either side of that baby gate. Some people also just replace their door or they will add an indoor screen door to be their visual access sort of area. Some people will also use a dog crate, like a giant dog crate, or even a kitty condo as their visual point. What you want to be cautious though, is you don't want to have a fearful cat inside of a dog crate and a more confident cat circling them like a shark tank, right? I typically like to give the more fearful cat the access to walk around and the more confident cat kind of seated inside the dog crate if you don't have the means to use the double baby gate system. So we're just, again, it's scent exposure, very mild distant scent exposure, then it's more up close scent exposure, then it's visual exposure, and then we start with physical. So if that's going well on either side of the gates or the dog crate, 
you can start feeding them both within that room. So on opposite sides of the room, and you're clearly there to supervise, you're letting them enjoy their food. If they're young cats, you can also use play. So if cats are really motivated by playing with a favorite toy, you could have one person playing with one cat and another person playing with other cat on the opposite side of the room. And you eventually bring the session closer and closer until that can either eat next to each other or play without any ruffling of the feathers, meaning there's no dilation of pupils, there's no hissing, there's no thrashing of the tail, no puffing up of the tail, no growling. That's going well. You can allow them a little bit of supervised time together watching for those body language signals. Like I said, that might mean there's a problem because you want to separate them before anything happens that could damage their relationship. So there is actually a study showing that the likelihood of their getting along long term is highly determined by what their initial introduction was. So it behooves families to invest in this time to slowly introduce them so that they are more likely to get along for the rest of their lives. And so it's really just, I still say, you know, if everything is going well and while you're supervising them, there's no harm, no foul, no ruffling of feathers, then you can allow them some supervised time out. I still recommend at least the first couple of weeks until you really trust that they're getting along. And by getting along, meaning they play a little or they just kind of say, eh, whatever, and they walk away from each other and they're not really bothered. There's no hyper focus on one another. You might still segregate that newcomer when you're not there to supervise for the first couple of weeks until you really feel like you can trust them. And then when it's time to let that newcomer out and explore and learn the rest of the household, what you want to do is make sure that there are escape routes and hiding places in every room of your home in case there is an altercation between the cats in another part of the house. And that can look anything like a dining room chair with a towel draped over it so there's a little cubby inside. Whether it's a cat tree, cat shelving, strategically placed shelves, they don't have to be ugly cat furniture in every room of your home. But just think strategically, are there areas and surfaces on the periphery of each room that are either up high or have a place to hide so that they feel like they can adequately space from each other if they need to? And then hopefully, we continue to offer multitudes of resources, particularly if there are more than two cats. But even with two cats, you may find that they don't want to share certain resources. And so having a couple of food stations, more than one location for the litter box, more than one scratching post, and making sure you're setting aside time for individual social attention with each cat without the other one around, at least in the beginning, to make sure that they're each getting all their needs met and aren't going to start taking it out on each other. Wonderful. Great information. Now we'll continue with this really important topic right after these messages from our sponsors. Molly, here's your dinner. (coughs) Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your cat tree tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com.
back to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. Really excited. We've been talking with Dr. Megan Heron, a board-certified veterinary behaviorist, about how we can decode our cats. So far, we've talked about how to introduce one cat to a new cat. Now, I did want to mention this great book that you're the editor of called Decoding Your Cat. The ultimate experts explain common cat behaviors and reveal how to prevent or change unwanted ones. But do you mind just talking about maybe one common mistake that you as a veterinary behaviorist see more commonly that pet owners are doing when it comes to their cat? A common mistake. Yeah. What's the number one mistake that cat owners are doing? I'm going to say, I think new cat owners maybe make the mistake of underestimating what it is to have a cat and that they're actually higher maintenance than they may seem. (laughs) Um, I think a lot of people might say, well, I'm going to get a cat because the dog is too much work. Well, the social needs and the mental needs and even the physical needs of cat are actually quite intense, particularly for a kitten. I think some people have no idea how life-changing a a rowdy kitten can be for them. So I think that's the first sort of area where people maybe aren't well-informed, whether or not it's a mistake or not. They may not be as well-informed, which again is why I hope this book can really change that so our cat families can be super informed before they make the choice to bring a cat into their home. I would say the second most common issue I see is litter box management, is assuming that cats will poop and pee wherever we designate, regardless of how appealing it is to them. And I think a lot of us get away with subpar litter box offerings and litter box hygiene, but more often than not, we see cats develop major urine spraying or peeing all over household items, including clothing, bedding, pillows, area rugs, and it all boils down to simple litter box hygiene. I think what people don't realize is cats, they have a certain preference for where they want to go to the bathroom. And that preference is going to include the size and the shape of the litter box. It's going to include what's in the litter box. And it's going to include where that litter box is, as well as if you have a multi-cat household, how many they are and what's their access to them. So litter boxes for cats, typically what you buy in the pet store is not big enough. We're, lo- we're talking storage containers big. The rule of thumb is generally the size of the cat from tip of the nose to the end of the tail times one and a half. And that's a lot bigger than most of our litter boxes. If you ever watch a cat go to the bathroom in the wild, they take up quite a bit of room. They dig, they explore, they sniff. Eh, that's not good enough. So they dig another hole, they look around, they sniff, and then that's good enough. So they turn around and they squat and then they turn back around and they use a whole lot of surface area to make sure it's fully covered up. So you want to make sure that it's big enough for them to do that. You also want to make sure the sides are not too high, that it's hard for them to get into it. That's particularly important for our geriatric cats. And then also make sure that if it is a litter box with a cover, you want to make sure it's really big and that it is cleaned more than once a day. You basically think of it as a toilet that needs to be flushed every time the cat goes to the bathroom. Otherwise, it's going to trap the odors and the cats are not going to enter. The other thing to remember about a covered litter box is that if it's a multi-cat household, some cats may be fearful to enter it if they don't have a good vantage point around them and they're worried they're going to be ambushed by another cat in the household. So that's one thing to remember. And then think about what they like in the litter box. So the substrate or the litter, there's so many brands out there. I don't know how a cat family decides these days. There's so many options. Again, another area where our book is very helpful and we talk about how that 
fine sandy substrate is what cats tend to prefer. Think about sand or dirt outside. That's what cats are seeking when they want to go to the bathroom. So that fine clay, clumping clay substrate tends to be preferred by a lot of cats. Certainly there are other materials, but the, the clumping does tend to have that finer substrate and it's also then cleaner when it's scooped. And then enough of that so they can fully dig and cover it up. And then lastly, location. It needs to be easily accessible, but also not right in the center of traffic. Some cats do like a little bit of privacy, but you also want to make sure that it's not down three flights of stairs, hiding behind the heater in the basement that suddenly turns on and makes a loud noise every once in a while, because that can create fear of the litter box area very quickly. And then it's also important to remember that you need to be paying attention to your cat's basically urinary and um, gastrointestinal health, because if they're having any sort of pain with their bowel movements or pain with urination, that can make them instantly hate their litter box and stop using it for a very long time. So what I try to tell people is, look at kind of the rules of the golden toilet. What, what do cats love? They want it big. They want it easily accessible. They tend to prefer it without a cover. They want a fine clumping, sandy texture litter. They want it cleaned every day and they want it in an area that they can easily locate that's not next to anything loud or scary. And then you want to just remember that if your cat suddenly stops using that box, suddenly starts going right next to it, or suddenly isn't going as often, you're seeing those urine clumps be much bigger than they used to be, or you're only seeing poop in the box every other day, those are big indicators that you need to see your veterinarian uh, because we want to make sure we address that health of the gastrointestinal system and the urinary tract system before it creates a litter box aversion. So long answer to your short question. No, that's great. That's great. I always also tell people not to have the food near there because we don't like to eat while we're on the toilet. So, yeah, Absolutely. So, I there's so a phrase important. that goes with that. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, fantastic information. Do you mind just telling us where people can find the book and who you think the perfect person or audience is for getting this book is? any of the online retailers. If you can access a bookstore, bookstores as well, an electronic version as well as an audio version. So I did actually get to pick out the voice that reads our book. So that was a tough choice to be honest, but it's a very nice female voice for our book. <laughs> <laughs> and really, as I said, the audience is anyone who has an interest in cats. I would say people who already have cats, it's a great way to dive deep into the psyche both the behavioral health and the physical health of your cat. Learn what might be indicators of medical disease. I think particularly with a lot of us stuck at home right now, we're seeing a lot of interesting behaviors in our cats. And I think it's helpful to read something like this right now so you can determine if maybe some of these behaviors mean you need a trip to the vet. But I also, my hopes and dreams are that anyone thinking of getting a cat reads this book first. It's kind of a guidebook of how to select the best cat friend for your family and how to set up your home for success and hopefully maintain the physical and mental well-being of that cat for the duration of its lifetime. Wonderful. Dr. Heron, thank you so much. Really important. Decoding your cat. And again, I agree. People just assume they're going to adopt this cute kitten. Kittens are so much work. I only adopt <laughs> older, mellow cats just to save adult cats from the, the shelter. But really appreciate all your feedback and look forward to reading this book. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. Find me at drjustinelee.com, on Facebook at Dr. Justine Lee, or email me your pet questions at drjustine at petliferadio.com. With that, we're out of time, and we want to thank our guests, Dr. Megan Heron and Mark Winter, our producer, for making this show possible. See you at the next episode. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.